Gracious, gracious God, our Father, you are good. And you are great. We ask this morning, would you meet us again? We come to you a people humbled by your greatness. We stand in awe of you, for you are majestic. You are wise. You are sovereign. And Lord, we come to you as well because you are good. You know our needs. You always do what is right. You are perfect in your discretion in your timing, in your provision, and in all of your ways. Would you speak this morning, Lord, to us, a needy people, to see afresh when the world lies to us, when all around is broken, when so many things would scream to us that this universe is not good. Would you soak us in the reality of your goodness, that we might treasure you above all. Lord, do your work here, we ask, for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. So much of the foundation of a relationship with God is knowing him as great and knowing him as good. In the garden, the temptation for the first woman and man was to question the goodness of God. And it's been this way ever since, hasn't it? The serpent sowed that seed of doubt in Eve to question the goodness of God. Timothy Keller tells us, the lie of Satan is that you can trust the lie of tra- sorry, okay, I'm gonna say that again. <laughs> the lie of Satan, Satan is that you can't trust the goodness of God or his commitment to your happiness and well-being, and that therefore, if we obey God fully, we'll miss out and we'll be miserable. That was the first temptation. And it really hasn't changed ever since, has it? Sinclair Ferguson goes on to say, what was injected into Eve's mind and affections during the conversation with the serpent was a deep-seated suspicion of God that soon further twisted into rebellion against him. Now, like a pouting child of creation's most generous father, she acted as though she would say to him, you never give me anything. You insist on me earning everything I'm ever going to have. Never felt like that, have we? The soul-freeing, spirit-tasted experience of the goodness of God is foundational to the life of the believer. It is is that bulwark that protects us when the temptations come. To know that he is good, though I don't see or I may not understand, yet fundamentally I choose to and I will and I cannot help but believe that he is good. But is God good? And does it hold true when life crumbles? Well, we offer over these last few months, Exhibit A, the letter of Philippians. Paul, imprisoned for speaking the truth to set people free, imprisoned falsely and unjustly, will he become embittered? Paul, harassed by the efforts and the motives of some who are seeking to deepen his distress and suffering even while he's incarcerated. Will he grow vengeful? Paul, facing the grief of fellow workers who are now at odds with one another, and they, they set alight the possibility to divide the very church which he helped found and whom he preached of the gospel of eternal life, and he might see it destroyed. 
eroding the unity? Will he be discouraged? Will he be defeated? Paul, knowing his dear partners in the gospel themselves are experiencing the same manner of suffering which he felt and experienced and that they will endure the same conflicts he has endured. Will he, in light of the angst over his friends and what they will go through, will he be hopeless and will he be fearful? He answers by writing the letter of Philippians, the letter of joy. We saw last week that the believer's deep source of joy, which runs throughout this entire letter, is a contentment grounded in Christ. Today, we hear Paul send his final greetings and his final thanksgiving for these Philippians, and he roots his confidence, he roots his contentment, that which, which bears fruit in joy, he roots that in the goodness of God as the great giver. Philippians 4, pick up with me, starting in verse 15. I'll read our passage for this morning. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you all. Greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is what it's like when you know the giver and you know and have tasted his goodness. This supernatural power now courses in you to be able to know the deep source of joy grounded in the contentment of being ruled by Christ. So we're all the way, in a sense, at the very bottom, the very foundational piece, the very nature of God himself in his goodness that bleeds through at the end of this book and stands underneath it all. And Paul there in verse 20 is giving glory to God for all of it, right? Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. For what, then, specifically in this passage, is he glorifying God? Three things. First, praise be to God for giving givers. Praise be to God, Paul says, for giving givers. Notice this in three different places. Verse 15, Paul exhorts them, that they are being God's gift to him. He rejoices and praises with them that they are givers. 15, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. Now, we know that there are other churches that partnered with Paul and support on his missionary journeys. In some cases, he was not supported at all, but rather he worked bivocationally. He was a tent maker so that there would be no impugning of the gospel. There would be no question that he wasn't doing it for money. But in other times and in other places, he devoted himself fully to the work of the preaching and the prayers and the discipling and the leading, so much so that he didn't have time or didn't choose to take time because he wanted to be fully invested to, to work separate from that. And so he was supported. We know other churches, Corinthians being one specifically, um, 
that did support him. But, but early on, after leaving from Philippi, after seeing them come to faith in Christ, apparently they were the only one at that time supporting him. And so he says, I, I praise God that he gives givers. <laughs> That's a sign of how good he is. He goes on and he says in 16 that this isn't, wasn't just a one-off. This was a, a continual partnership that they had with him, 16. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Literally, uh, the original language here says you sent a gift once and twice. Uh, it's a little idiomatic expression that just means more than one time or often. You sent me gifts once and twice. I, I think it was more than two, Paul. That's the point. You partnered with me. And I have known the goodness of God because I have not walked alone. I have known I'm being prayed for. I'm known, I've known that there's a people who've got my back. And he actually has just come out of a, a longer season. We know this from the beginning earlier in four, that, that he hadn't received any financial support. And yet even in that season, he knew God's goodness. He, he knew that these were faithful supporters and lovers, even though he hadn't seen it for a time. And that was fine too. But he rejoices a third time that God has given them as givers in 18 because he has been so richly provided for. 18, he opens, I have received everything in full and I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus. Amply supplied is almost not strong enough words. It's uh, the, the key idea of the, the word behind that is the word abundance, overabounding. He says, I'm full, I'm supplied, and then he says, I'm overabounding on top of that. Now, guys, catch the context. This man is in prison, right? And he says, I couldn't ask for anything else. I mean, I just, I just have everything I need. And you're like, I could think of a couple of things you might ask for. That's just me. He's mentioned Epaphroditus a couple of times, this man who risked his life, who got sick and nearly died. He has commended Epaphroditus for his loyalty and faithfulness as a, as a model of one who walks with Christ. And what you have to read in verse 18, if you get through the end of this passage and you are convinced that, that what we have in Philippians is a man who's mostly driven by an interest in money, then you've missed everything. And, and you miss the richness of what's behind in verse 18 for him in prison to say, I not only have everything I need, I have an abundance. I have more. And it's like, oh my goodness, all of this in heaven too. I can't believe it. Thank you, Lord. His contentment is not something he's struggling to produce. Yes, he may have labored in prayer. He may have, he may have sweated and cried and cried out to God. But he has a, been brought to that place where he does consider everything else but rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. And so he can say, and look, on top of this, you have shown your love for me. You have given fellow, you've done the impossible and given fellowship to me. Look at what good givers God has given me because he's such a good God. Now, the way I phrased it is purposeful because I believe it's, it's the connection. Praise be to God for givers, right? No. Praise be to God for giving givers. Because where does this giving come from? How did they become such givers? It came from God. You want the connection? Because it's really leaping out of the page at us if we were to read in the original. Look at verse 15. Near the end, right in the, well, almost in the middle, he said, No church what? Shared. 
Quick quiz, pop quiz. See how well you remember if you've been here over the previous months. Does that kick up any theme, any idea in your mind? It's the word koinonia I've mentioned a couple of times. Share is sometimes translated partnership or partnering. It's sometimes translated fellowship. It's sometimes translated partaker. It's used many times in this book. Paul will begin the letter with two or three uses of it, and he will end the book with it. And what he is saying in all of this is you are koinonia. You are partners, fellows, workers together with me. In what? Well, chapter 1, verse 5. You don't have to flip there, but I'll read it to you. There he says, you are partners in the gospel. In verse 7 of chapter 1, he says, you are partners in grace. And if you're still here in chapter 4, look up just a few verses to 14. Nevertheless, you have done well to what? Koinonia with me in my affliction. You have shared in the gospel. You have shared in grace. You have shared in my sufferings. And now you have shared in giving. Why? Why the latter? Because of the former. God shed abroad his grace and they shared in it. And they said, our God is so generous. How can we be less? Our God is a generous God. How can we withhold what he has, he has given to us? You guys know the, the old metaphor that is the Dead Sea, right? You know that the Dead Sea is not dead because fresh water won't flow into it, right? You know that the Dead Sea is dead because... Nothing flows out of it. We cannot help but, but give of the abundance and generosity and life that our God has given to us, they say. And so, yes, Paul, of course we would share with you in this, just as we've shared the gospel, just as we've tasted of grace. Now God has made us givers, and so we gladly share in your afflictions with joy. Brothers and sisters suffering for the gospel today, and having to make decisions in this world and your reputation suffering for it, we share because of God's generosity towards us. So we choose to share in the affliction and we'll share in the giving. Praise be to God for giving givers. It's the generosity of God that makes for generosity in man. Who's been generous of spirit in your life? Who's been life-giving for you? It's never too late to say thanks, right? It's never too late to be grateful. And, and, and we'll, we'll never, you know, probably say thanks enough for all of the ways that we've been blessed, ministered to, prayed over, thought of, invited, included, or whatever. Enough. But it's a good to pause and just... Thank God, look at all the givers you've given, Lord. Look at those who have walked alongside me, and I see your generosity in them. Another takeaway might be to ask the other side of the question, how is your spirit today? Are you feeling closed? Are you feeling miserly? <laughs> are, you, are you feeling like you've got to pull the tent stakes in and kind of clutch everything close? Maybe the place to spend some time dwelling this week, if you've struggled with that, might be to go back and just consider afresh the goodness of God. Mostly, let's rejoice that God has given givers. Praise be to God for giving givers. Second, praise be to God for rewarding givers. 
Praise be to God for rewarding givers. Three times we'll see Paul rejoice in that. First here in 17, Paul tells them that your giving, the Philippians, your giving will be richly rewarded. He says, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. He, he is absolutely using economics language in this passage. We find these same Greek terms in other first century extra-biblical writings in um, banking and commerce, these exact terms. He has stolen them for the purpose or actually given them a richer meaning. Hey Amen. I'm not all about this because I want you to, to fill up my bank account. I'm all about this because I want you to fill up your bank account. <laughs> I'm excited because you get to be a part of the eternal work of what God is doing in the world. And you get to be a part of the eternal rewards that come out of being a part of what God is doing in the world. That which would, where's the word in my translation? 17, there it is, profit. That which would profit your account or accrue to your account. It's the idea of, of gaining interest on a good deposit. Except the beautiful thing about finances given unto the Lord is that they don't gain just in kind, but they gain in spiritual account. They gain interest in eternal reward. And that's an awesome thought. What is that profit, or the word there can be translated fruit? Well, you may give so that Bibles can go to closed countries. You think you'll regret that sacrifice in eternity? Are you kidding me? I can't wait to meet maybe one person. Lord, if you've allowed me to be a part of that. What about some who's just suffering with daily needs? Food, clothing, education. Or what about the, uh, the teach a man to fish kind of gifts, right? Training. Uh, skills in farming, right? Um, we've, uh, we've sometimes used those little guides at Christmas that I'm sure some of you have too, where you can give a family a goat and then they can get milk and they can maybe breed it or use it for meat or whatever. And it multiplied. What about providing things like health and hospitalization? and provision for surgeries for the persecuted church. We celebrate every November, the International Day of Prayer, and we're reminded that brothers and sisters in Christ go to the hospital for their faith, and they don't have means to pay. And there are ministries who come alongside and renew them in their health, help bring them back to where they can walk again. Talk about an eternal fruit to do that for someone. And we could go on. What about the training of leaders? What about just sending evangelists? What about... What about building churches that themselves can become self-sustaining? I don't mean buildings, although that may be a part of it. I mean building into the people through discipleship and giving to that. Christian orphanages and on and on it goes. That's the eternal fruit. That's the great reward. Praise be to God that he rewards givers. And it's grace upon grace because if you and I can give, it's because we've been graced with resources to share. Or if it's not even strictly financial, we've been graced with time. We've been graced with 
with the margin to listen, with, with the heart to be others-centered, with the love to ask, approach, confront, help, come alongside. And he's the one who gave the power to do that, which is a reward in itself, but then he rewards us for faithful work. Praise be to God. I don't know. Is he good? Praise be to God for giving givers. Praise be to God for rewarding givers. I love this mindset, too, of, of givers who give because they want the reward. Don't worry, I'm going to talk about prosperity gospel in just a second, and we'll talk about why this is exactly the opposite. But I love the right biblical understanding of a giver who gives to be rewarded with eternal reward. 30 years ago-ish, I went on the first mission trip that I ever got to be a part of. First time I raised support, and that's a weird thing to like ask people for money. There are some who I knew who, uh, who literally thought I was in a cult. They thought, you're asking people for money for God. I'm pretty sure that that's like beyond the pale of what's a good thing to do. That's, that's just wrong. Paul Kemp was a pastor of Desert Springs Church at the time. I remember when uh, the church um, agreed to support me. And I remember when he gave me that news. Sorry. <laughs> and I was so humbled. I was like, I'm going to go do this super cool thing, and you guys want to pay to make it possible for me to do that? That's unbelievable. And his response to me, I'll never, never forget. And I've said this to some of you because I'm in his place now, and it stuck with me. He said, no, Frank, thanks. Thank you for the privilege of letting us be a part of what God is doing in the world. And I think he meant it. <laughs> and I thought, wow, Lord, I guess my understanding needs to grow a lot, doesn't it? Because that wasn't the way I was thinking of it. But I can be taught. Notice the reward again, second time in verse 18. I am amply supplied, middle of 18, having received from Epaphroditus which you have sent. And then here's how he describes their gift. A fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. This is... This is Temple language and imagery. This is sacrifice uh, animal offering language that every one of these would be well aware of. This is a worship offering. And what it means that it's a well-pleasing aroma is that it was by its attitude in being given was pleasing to God himself. Is that not an awesome thing? God in heaven looked down and said, you have brought pleasure to my soul. By what you have done. First time these words are ever used. Back in Genesis 8 and 9. Noah steps off the ark. He takes from some of the clean animals. And he offers a sacrifice to God. Which it says is a pleasing aroma to him. And what does God say in response? Though man's heart is evil. I will never again destroy the world with a flood. By the way, here's my sign in the clouds. That's the first time this phrase is ever used in Scripture. And Paul says, what you have done, Philippians, as givers of God, has brought pleasure to your Lord. And that is reward of itself, that his soul is now pleased by what you have done. I remember in grad school, 
I, I apologize for telling a story that makes me sound good. Uh, I, I'm serious uh, because I am not a good giver. Ask my wife. It's something that I have learned through much struggle, and I'm still much learning. In grad school, though, God had laid it on my heart. I supported a boy in India uh, through, through a ministry, a gospel ministry. And, and it was life-changing for me. I, I don't know what all God did for Ketur. I know what God did for me. I know that the finances helped him with food and education, and he got gospel teaching, and he got discipled. It's hilarious because I was thinking about that this week. Um, he's in his 40s now. <laughs> I would be so humbled to meet him. N not because I've been great. I would be so humbled by what God may have done. And I will be so humbled and so rejoicing to meet him one day. The letters we wrote and the prayers that I had the privilege to pray for him. Were, were transformative for me. They were reward enough. But friends, you know what? That's not even the beginning of it, is it? I can't wait to hear the rest of the story that a faithful God would do. It was not a sacrifice. Can you feel God's pleasure when you give? Because that's what Paul says it is. Remember the words of our Savior. It's more blessed to give than receive. Verse 19, he goes on. Third way, he says, praise be to God for rewarding givers. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You can't outgive God. When he calls you to generosity, then he can provide for all your needs. Maybe it needs to be said this morning, you are not commanded to give to every opportunity. There absolutely will be more opportunities to give. You are finite. The opportunities are nearly infinite. But if he calls you, then he will provide. Two quick thoughts on why this is not the prosperity gospel. Why verse 19 is not, well, look, if I give, he'll just give me back more. So I'll give a lot and then he'll give me even more and more. And that's how this works, right? I want you to notice biblically the broader context. Uh, you could look at it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. When he tells the believers there that God will provide for them as they give, he specifically mentions God will provide an abundance so that, I'm sorry, God will uh, provide an abundance for every good work. The provision of God that is promised is for the resources for future good works. That's the promise. It's not stake, right? or whatever cool car. It's not the prosperity as 21st century America would measure it. St. Corinthians 9 says, I'm, I'm supplied for my needs. I'm sorry, he will supply your needs, and then he will give an abundance for every good work. Every work he calls you to, he'll provide for. First of all, that's the biblical grounding in general, and we don't have time to talk about why we aren't prosperity gospel, but you know it anyway. But I just want to come back here and note, where does the provision lie? My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Question, um, does God have American dollar bills in heaven that he's going to rain down on you? No, he will provide according to his riches and glory. He may indeed provide finances, and he indeed does for the provision of every good work as he sees fit to call you to it. 
But here, his glorious riches are much more than finances. Proof? What did Paul just get done saying a few minutes ago? Not today, but a couple weeks ago at the beginning of chapter 4. I come to you not out of need, because I have no wants, because I have learned to be content, right? The riches are beyond the finances that provide contentment leading to a, a deep source of joy when there are no finances. So what does God provide? He, provide? he provides that which is far beyond this deep richness of his presence. And so last week we talked about the contentment that can rest in God's sovereignty and timing. That's part of his riches. When you entrust your money to him by giving it, if called to do so in obedience, part of what you're doing is seeking to trust him for provision and to see his sovereignty and find contentment in his timing and his ways. We talked about contentment that can feed on God's rewarding presence and that contentment thrives by being ruled by Christ. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus said. And so sometimes one of the best ways to kill off one master is to make that one serve the other one. So make your money serve God. And the glories of the risen Christ as your master will grow in your heart and mind. And boy, do we need help with this. Praise be to God for rewarding givers. Finally this morning, praise be to God for being the giver. That's been behind everything that we've said thus far, and sure, surely, as I said at the beginning, everything else comes out of it, but it's really where Paul ends as he brings the passage to a close. These verses here show several different ways that God deserves glory as being the giver or the provider. Verse 20 says, Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Why? Because first in immediate context, because he's the one who gave givers, and he's the one who supplied for all of the needs. So God is able to provide funds, but he's also able to provide peace, which guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, beginning of chapter 4. He's able to provide contentment, regardless of circumstances, middle of chapter 4. He's able to provide joy, all of chapter 4 and all of the book of Philippians. Notice what else he is good to give. Notice that he provides fellowship and creates brotherhood. 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. What's cool about what he has in verse 21, the way that Paul says it there, I believe it's unique among all, amongst all his letters. There are several places in his writings, and even in this one, where he will say, greet all the saints. I think this is the only place where he says, greet every saint. You know what's good about knowing God the giver? Is that he gives us a fundamental unity with every other believer. And so think of brothers or sisters that you may have had struggles with or been at odds with. And realize that you can embrace them in the name of Christ. And that is a good gift of God. We are called to greet every saint. And we would not have the ability to do it when there is animosity or strife or disagreement between us. We would not have the ability to do it if it weren't for the fact that God is good. We don't have to pre pretend that everything is okay. Accept one another as God in Christ has accepted you. I can still embrace you. You can still embrace me. That is another good gift creating brotherhood. 22, 
He also converts the lost. He is the giver of eternal life. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. It's very possible that this is speaking of the Caesar, and it is in Rome. In fact, that's probably our default, except we actually have similar language used elsewhere, even in Scripture, of Herod's household. So we still don't know for certain if Paul is writing from his imprisonment in Rome, in Caesarea, or possibly he could have been imprisoned in Ephesus. Most likely it was Rome. Regardless, what we know is that there are some who serve in the name of Caesar who have come to faith in Christ. Maybe they are some of his local authorities, his, his governors. Maybe are, they are some of the servants in his household or some of those who set the table for Herod. And they go in and set the food and they sing psalms as they have been taught that point to Jesus Christ, their Savior. What a glorious thing that even in the heights of the, the influencers of the culture of that day, even in the corridors of power, in the bedrooms and in the dining halls, there are believers, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, so it is true yet today. Praise be to God for being the giver because he gives eternal life even to some of those in the places you would least expect it. I just saw this last week. Was it Dawkins? It was one of the famous atheist authors of this generation. I believe it was Dawkins. Uh, one of his right-hand men contacted a, uh, a Christian ministry, and the ministry was reporting. This guy was Dawkins' right-hand man. He contacted us to tell us he's come to faith in Christ, and he wanted to ask if he could meet with us for discipleship. <laughs> How cool is that? Praise be to God for being the giver of eternal life. You want to know how much God is the giver? Paul ends with what is the, the ultimate blessing. He ends with the word, which is for believers, the ultimate concept. The grace, 23, of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace is from the giver that you and I don't deserve. Praise be to God for giving givers. You think he's good? Praise be to God for rewarding givers. You think he's good? Praise be to God for being the giver. Here in our final passage, we see God's glory reigning over all of it. And we find Paul's joy running through the midst of it. Almost as if God's glory in us is somehow intrinsically tied to our enjoyment of him. Or as John Piper would say, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Our enjoyment of God and his glory in us all born out of his fundamental goodness. And that's how it works when you know the giver. Stand with me. Let's close in prayer. Let me speak a couple of words before we pray. Friend, if you are here today and you do not know that God is infinitely good, how we would wish that you would get the chance to taste that. As we pray here in a moment, would you consider turning your heart and your thoughts to him? Maybe you thought of him only as a judge to flee or as a distant, powerful deity to fear. But he has come in Christ to die for your sins and to create a relationship with you. We want you to know that he is good and that you would taste it. All right, brothers and sisters, let's pray.
Our great God, thank you because you are great, our wondrous God. It's amazing that being so great, you are also so very good. Let us taste your goodness this week. Let us meditate on it often and let it fuel contentment. Let it fuel a desire to be submissive to Christ, our good master and our great shepherd and savior. And Lord, might you be pleased to produce in us a joy that the world wants to know how we need it and how we need you. We thank you for your every provision and we bless you all to your glory. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Uh, Let's enjoy a little more celebration downstairs together uh, with the graduates and then uh, have a great week. Thank you.